Hey there, everybody. Tom Salemi from the MedTech Talk Podcast. Welcome back to our show. Thanks for joining us. We're going to visit with one successful CEO. His name is Matt Likens. He was the CEO of Althera, an aesthetics company acquired by MERS two years ago for what ultimately will be $600 million, which is a, a great sum, no matter how you slice it, no matter what the space in MedTech Matt is uh, an interesting fellow. He's got a great sense of humor and has a real uh, intentional perspective or a real intentional approach to building culture and leadership. So uh, clearly I worked for Althera. Uh, They had a a great outcome. And uh, Matt uh, was at our conference, our MedTech conference on June 1st in Minneapolis and uh, added a great deal there to our consumer panel. So we're very happy to have him here on the MedTech Talk podcast to share his pursuit or his approach to uh, building uh, an aesthetics concept, really, an idea into a wildly successful commercial enterprise and uh, a really attractive exit, not only for investors, but for Althera uh, employees as well. So hope you enjoy this conversation with Matt Likens. Well, Matt Likens, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Uh, Great to be aboard with you. Very, uh, very pleased to have you here and have you part of our MedTech conference, too. It was uh, nice to have you out there and sitting on our consumer panel. Uh, Hope that was a rewarding experience for you. It was for me, and I was really impressed with the array of speakers and panelists that you had and and a great turnout, as usual. And so everything very well well organized and uh, plan to attend again next year. Oh, fantastic. Great to have you back. But of course, we had you up there. Well, in addition to your 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 sense of humor, we had you up there because of your uh, your recent success. I mean, you 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 don't make you don't close on a six hundred million dollar deal every every day, and uh, you uh, started at Othera and, and led it until its uh, eventual acquisition, recent acquisition by uh, by MERS. So I wanted to kind of just get into how you recognize this opportunity and sort of what went into the uh, the building of what ultimately was. Was it six hundred million up front, or the whole price tag, or were there some earnouts that I should be uh, referencing as well? That to, to give you your, your proper due, right? It was actually four hundred and fifty million up front, yeah, uh, and then one hundred and fifty million in milestone payments, and thus far we've earned another seventy-five million of the remaining one hundred and fifty. So we have three more twenty-five million dollar milestones that we are doggedly pursuing as we speak. Uh, and in fact, when the deal was uh, consummated in July of 2014, uh, myself and the rest of the senior management team agreed to a uh, two-year retention agreements uh, with Mertz. And, and today, as we speak, this is my last official day uh, with the company. Uh, but I think the transition has gone very smoothly and things are on track. So it's been a great experience. What is, what is this day like for you? I mean, clearly this has been your life for a decade. Um, and you're happy with the outcome and, and it's found a good home. Uh, is there any, any bitter to the sweetness? Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you can level with me, Matt. Yeah, no, let me tell you, honestly, <laughs> um, I think uh, if I have to uh, provide advice to other entrepreneurs who, uh, whose businesses are acquired uh, by an outside firm, I would say a one-year retention agreement is probably the appropriate time frame, just to make sure that integration happens and the right transition of responsibilities occur. So, so this second year has been a bit challenging, uh, just because I've spent most of the time preparing 
the management team that is remaining here to carry on and fill in those gaps. And, you know, at, at that time, you don't feel nearly as useful as one might want to feel. So <laughs> I think one year, so this is, this is great. It couldn't have come quickly enough. And, and yours is a, is a commercial product. So I could see, you know, maybe if it's a, if it's something that's still in development and you need to get it uh, over the finish line, you could still uh, contribute in that way. But you're right. At some point, uh, I suppose someone else can certainly step in and, and, and sell this product as nearly as well or as well as you might be able to. Yeah. And in fact, it is commercial. And in fact, at the time of the acquisition, our trailing 12 months revenue uh, was 91 million. Uh, and so we really were pleased with the 6.6 times revenue uh, that the 600 million acquisition represented. Uh, and in fact, as we finished 2014, we were right around 150 million in global revenue. So in the business uh, today is the largest product line within the Mertz portfolio, and it continues to grow at the fastest rate of any of their product lines. So, so I'm really proud that, you know, we didn't just sell it and then run away. We sold it and made sure it was in good hands and continued to uh, thrive uh, under the new ownership. That's terrific. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, how did you come to Ulthera? How did you sort of assess the opportunity, what did you, you think it was uh, and did it ultimately were your, your projections correct in, <clears throat> in what Althera could, could create? Yeah. So, um, my background is, uh, you know, J and J for three years, right out of school and then Baxter healthcare for 23 years, uh, 10 different positions, uh, many relocations, <laughs> Uh, and then I got one of those calls that you sometimes get in uh, early 2001 uh, from a very well from from a recruiter looking for a senior executive for a very well funded startup in South Florida called GMP Companies, and they had raised 180 million dollars and um, 14 different licensing agreements, drugs, diagnostics, and devices. And it, it was at GMP, the first startup that I was part of where I learned everything not to do in a startup. <laughs> so, so I don't want to dwell on that. If you want to explore that a little more, I'd be happy well, to, give me two. to say well, a little give more me, about it. Yeah, give me two things you wouldn't do in a startup. Okay, so for instance, uh, uh, I think it was a great platform where you had a group of 75 to 100 people developing 14 technologies. But the CEO at the time uh, was intent upon treating each of these 14 almost as if they were your children, right? And you don't want to show favoritism to, to any particular child. So you try to treat them all relatively equally. Well, that's fine for children. Not so great if you're trying to manage a portfolio of technology. So even though a number of us strongly suggested that gee, these two or three technologies have great promise and are probably closer to regulatory clearances and commercialization. And if we focus most of our resources on them and move them forward, they could likely then provide revenue and margins to support select others as we, you know, portfolio management concept, right? Uh, but he would have none of that thinking. <laughs> so, so that's one example. Uh, I, I think, you know, focusing resources on the most promising uh, opportunities that you have is really critical, even if you're very well funded. That's a good lesson for sure. Yeah. Sometimes you do need to yeah. play favorites, except with your children, of course. You're right. 
You're right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you make the leap there from uh, uh, to Othero, or, or, or was there a step in between? No, there wasn't. So I left there after five years. Uh, the first CEO had been replaced by a banker from Goldman Sachs. Uh, brilliant choice. Um, and she and I actually raised a round of financing for the business that I ended up running, which was GMP Wireless Medicine, using Motorola technology for wireless EKGs uh, with a disposable lead set on the patient and then hooking into a transmitter that could transmit vital signs up to 100 feet away with Bluetooth Class 2. Uh, and you could uh, untether patients from bedside monitors in critical care units or emergency rooms. Great technology. And in fact, I understand that company still exists and is operating today. Um, but, uh, but at that point, we raised the round of financing for wireless in April of 06, and it was time for me to depart. So I came to Altera because, frankly, I needed a job. Oh, that's a good reason to go. <laughs> that's a good reason <laughs> yeah. to go. Yeah. My daughter was uh, just finishing her senior year in high school. She needed to, you know, to have college paid for. Our son was just getting out of college. And, uh, uh, and also, I always wanted to be a CEO and had not, just, just because I felt like I had learned a lot and I could apply it maybe effectively and hopefully galvanize the right types of people to join uh, the team. And Althera offered that, offered that opportunity out of um, Mesa, Arizona, of all places. Now, if I remember correctly, you uh, you um, were a commercial guy, uh, and sort of saw Althera as a as a commercial opportunity. But did it uh, did it meet your expectations, or, or, or what, why don't we get into the move into, into Althera? Yeah, so I, I actually uh, I heard about the opportunity through a former J and J colleague, uh, who's uh, who knew the um, the head of early stage investments in the U.S. for the London-based private equity firm, 3i. And 3i had made an early investment in Othera, about $5.5 million, uh, in November of 2005. And so um, one thing led to another. And like everything else, Tom, it's connections, uh, not what you know, but who you know. And so I had the opportunity to come out to Arizona and meet the founder of the company, Dr. Michael Slayton. And Michael grew up in Moscow, you know, in the Soviet Union, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But a brilliant scientist, got his PhD in acoustics from Kiev State University in the Ukraine. And he had actually been working for about four years with J&J's ethical endosurgery on a way to image tissue, and they were focused on liver cancer, and then focus ultrasound thermal energy to ablate that liver cancer uh, in a remote uh, way, so in a non-invasive way. <clears throat> so uh, that kind of ran its course, and then Michael decided this had better opportunities in the world of aesthetics, uh, and he was looking for a CEO because a 510K had already been sent into the FDA. And as I talked to Michael, he said, hey, I need somebody. They have to have a commercial background. We're going to get clearance in the next 90 days. When can you start? And uh, then three and a half years later, we actually got FDA clearance. So it was wonderful. But what? But you went in there thinking it was a, the commercial opportunity would come a lot more quickly than it did. What were some of the adjustments you sort of had to make to to get Althera's product on the market? Yeah, so knowing that um, 
we probably had a bit of a long slog ahead of us with the FDA, mainly because of the uh, innovative nature of our technology. And in fact, there really was not a, an identified predicate device, which is always a challenge. Um, so we started to focus our attention on getting a, a CE mark and maybe getting out in the marketplace uh, earlier outside the U.S. than we could expect to, to uh, achieve uh, with FDA. So that helped. And, and then we, we sponsored several clinical trials to validate the fact that we could actually accomplish non-invasive firming, tightening, and lifting of facial skin tissue. And fortunately, the clinical studies went beautifully uh, this is a very effective treatment, and, and we slowly but surely generated the type of data that the FDA was looking for. And in the meantime, in, in the second half of 2008, you know, roughly two years after I joined the company, we got our CE mark and sold our first 10 systems along with 36 disposables and generated our first uh, $500,000 of revenue. So it was delayed, but uh, but uh, I actually think starting outside the U.S. was the best thing that happened to us. How did you structure those those clinical trials? I, I remember them being somewhat of a unique uh, unique process. Yeah, the the first one that we did, uh, we actually started about three weeks after I, I joined the company, and that was at Northwestern. Uh, Dr. Mirad Alam, who's the uh, director of the dermatology group there, um, uh, helped us really structure them and. You know, in aesthetics, uh, it's a completely different ballgame than therapeutics. So you're really looking at patients and photographs, you know, before treatment and post-treatment. So alignment uh, of the patient and an absolutely pristine photographic techniques are required, as well as very accurate measuring devices so that you can really have an apples-to-apples -apples comparison mm -hmm with position of skin tissue prior to treatment, 30 days post, 60 days post, and, and even 180 days post-treatment uh, to really measure and uh, ascertain what the change has been. Did the, uh, did the trials produce any surprises or, or did everything uh, pan out as you had anticipated? Yeah, the, the surprise was the consistency of the efficacy of the treatment. You know, uh, coming, you know, after being in blood collection and transfusion medicine and hemophilia, and dialysis and immunotherapy and Baxter's motto, all of my years, there, are critical therapies for life threatening conditions. You know, you, you really, we, we, we probably took ourselves a little too seriously. And, and then when you move over to aesthetics, you know, it's a, it's, it's a little more moderate as far as what the expectations are. So you're trying to make people look better and then they can feel better about how they look, but no one's dying. It's all cash pay. You know, it's completely different environment. And unfortunately, the field of aesthetics from a technology standpoint has been more characterized by snake oil and failed promises than true science, you know, in, in and a therapeutic mindset. Uh, so, so that, that was a huge difference. And the fact that our technology created very consistent 
cosmetic improvements on patients really set us apart. And in fact, over the years, we've done over 50 studies. We have 45 published peer-reviewed papers, you know, really documenting the science uh, behind. And we're really beginning the process of building new collagen as a result of very, in a very controlled fashion, insulting the tissue at various depths with thermal energy below the surface of the skin. And did the the, the, the clinical trial requirements that came from uh, the FDA, were they too looking to move past the, 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 the snake oil imagery and really have uh, pro- produced some or, or, or require some rigor from the specialty? Or, or did that uh, those demands for the clinical trials that you did really come from within because you wanted to have the data to really drive the point home when you began marketing it? Yeah, originally it came from within, but as we interacted more with the FDA, we realized that uh, they were absolutely on board. In fact, a big part of our um, 510K submissions uh, had a piece to do with patient satisfaction as well. So it wasn't just good enough to show that you had you know, a quantitative improvement in the position of the brow or the lower face and neck or improvement in fine lines and wrinkles of the decolletage. Uh, we had to make sure that not only could we measure them, but patients were also satisfied that they got their desired improvement. Um, so, so that was great. And, and uh, we feel like we really led the charge in kind of transforming aesthetic medicine into a more scientifically and clinically based approach. And how large were your trials? Um, we, we ended up, gee, with the first two trials, uh, over 300 patients treated. Now, that's not a lot if you're talking about a therapeutic area, but in aesthetics, that, that was large, um, and especially, you know, with the consistency of the results. You know, we didn't have to do thousands of patients to prove the efficacy. It, it was very apparent. So, you know, you, you asked about uh, was it intentional? And in fact, when I started at Ulthera and you know, got a little more knowledge about the aesthetics business, we decided that we needed to have at least one what Jim Collins, you know, from the, the author of Good to Great and a number of other, you know, really fabulous business books from, from Stanford uh, calls Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. And sometimes these, these are aspirational in nature and sometimes you know, they're, you could achieve them, but, but it's going to take, you know, a, a grand effort in order to get there. So we thought, first off, well, let's be that aesthetics company that gives you a result you can count on. So let's have 100% treatment efficacy as our first big, hairy, audacious goal. And everybody thought, well, you're crazy. You know, no one uh, everybody is different, all these patients. And so it's impossible that 100% of the patients will have the desired clinical effect. But as we thought about it, well, that may be true, but if that's not your goal, then why are you even doing this? And, and so I think over time, we, we uh, estimate that our efficacy is in the high 90s range. Uh, and that's from refining the technology and the treatment guidelines and protocols. But we're really proud of that record. And then having been at Baxter for all those years, and Baxter is very much a financially oriented company, at least it was in my uh, tenure there, uh, we needed something numeric. And so we thought, well, let's, let's create a billion dollars in value 
with Altera. And, and actually, the two big, hairy, audacious goals fit nicely together. We felt the higher we could drive efficacy, the more valuable our enterprise would become. So actually, we failed at both. <laughs> you know, we, didn't, we didn't get to 100% efficacy, and, and we didn't get to a billion dollars in value. But you know, if we hadn't had those really ambitious goals, I don't think we would have achieved as much as we did. Hey, everybody. Tom here. Just want to remind you to go to the medtechconference.com website. Sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. You will get our original MedTech coverage, including future podcasts and our original video content. Just go to medtechconference.com, sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. We really just need your email, and you will be kept in the loop. Now back to this conversation with Matt Likens. Did the, the clinical data, was that important to the physicians uh, that you sold to? Did they really uh, require that kind of uh, information to, to, to buy into Althera's story? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, maybe 100 key opinion leaders that you have to convince, first of all, that you're not going to cause harm to their patients. And then the more confident they are based on your clinical studies that you can really provide significant value and improvement to their patients. You know, if you can get past those hundred, then you know, there are thousands of other physicians that are ready to adopt the technology. So it really was important. And I think we got a lot of uh, kudos in the marketplace for, you know, the solid science that we had behind it. Uh, Dr. Lisa Mizell uh, was our VP of Clinical Medical Affairs. She is still at Merck's today. Uh, and she's got a PhD in biochemistry from Berkeley. She had been at Suniva Medical and Allergan and Kinemed, you know, before we lured her to Altera. And she and her team just did a fabulous job of setting up clinicals and knocking them down and documenting the results and working closely with regulatory to to then get expanded indications for our technology. So it, it was a great team effort. What challenges did you face uh, ramping up the, the commercial sales? Um, the big challenge was the amount of cynicism in the marketplace. These same key opinion leaders had been I won't say fooled before, but let's just say, let's just say disappointed. Well, there's been a lot of, te- uh, a lot with, of attempts in this area. A lot of- yeah. A host of, uh, you know, very promising technologies that, uh, ultimately were disappointing as far as the, the lack of efficacy and consistency of results. So, so that was huge to overcome. And also we were the first focused ultrasound technology in this marketplace. So there was very little knowledge about it and some fear and trepidation as a result of the lack of knowledge. So there was a, an educational process that needed to go by that we needed to embrace. Um, but the fact was that once we got through those you know, first couple hundred uh, adopters, uh, this was a tremendous uh, source of revenue and profit generation for the aesthetic practices, mm-hmm. you know, dermatologists, plastic surgeons, facial plastics. And, you know, it, it was actually a very compelling economic argument and, and sales really began to explode. And, and the, the, the fear was centered around the use of ultrasound technology just because they weren't familiar with that? Yeah, and this is combined with imaging, which was really cool and I think helped get us over the hump because we're imaging down to eight millimeters of depth, so from the surface of the skin on down. And so you're really confirming while you're doing the treatment in real time that there's nothing underneath the skin that you should be worried about. 
you know, as far as a tumor or a vessel or something uh, that might cause you uh, to not want to treat that. So Rox Anderson, you know, from Mass General and the Wellman uh, Institute for Photomedicine, who's who's kind of the guru uh, as far as dermatology and, and the, the energy-based technologies that address these issues, felt uh, that I think his quote was that uh, we were the first company who could unblind the physicians as to what they were accomplishing and what they were uh, able to uh, see below the, the surface of the skin prior to treating. And he felt that was a major step forward as far as safety. So you introduced the, the, the product to physicians. You began to get some traction. How did you, what, what philosophy did you adopt going forward in, in operating the company and turning it into a real commercial enterprise? Yeah, well, well Tom, uh, you know, having spent all that time, J.J. Baxter, the failed startup that I mentioned before, you know, you, you have lessons learned along the way. And so I felt that Altero um, offered a real opportunity to apply those lessons learned. And so uh, I mentioned the big, hairy, audacious goals. The second thing that I think was really important is we had uh, five operating principles originally, and they expanded to seven. And they all start with the letter C. And, and I think they provided a real direction. Uh, for the company. Everybody knew what we stood for as a company. So customer focus was number one, really important because if we sell a system to a customer, we have to view that as at least a 10-year relationship. This technology is going to expand in value uh, over that period of time. This is a long-term relationship. And so our goal as a company, we said we wanted to bring more value to the relationship every year of ownership new transducers to treat at different depths, new treatment protocols, new FDA clearances, marketing support for the practices so they could uh, better commercialize within their local community, on and on. And, and so that philosophy was really core. Second, consistency, not just clinical results, but also pricing strategies because all the physicians talked to one another. So we had one price for our system. And either that worked for you or it didn't. But we would not uh, go in one price for our disposable. We felt like that was really important. Um, third, we embraced a concept called constructive confrontation. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's me as a CEO or any of my direct reports, uh, if somebody had a better idea or someone didn't understand what we were doing or someone you know, had a a real issue with what we were doing, please, let's talk about it. I mean, this is not, I don't need to be right. We just want to do the right thing. So, so I think that helped as well. We had great communication. We were able to, to hire really talented people. Cost effectiveness uh, was important as well. Um, just managing, and every employee had a piece of ownership with stock options. And so because of that, we could say, treat it like your own business, okay? And, and don't, uh, don't be cheap, but frugal is okay. <laughs> Compliance, creativity, and collaboration were the other three. And again, it set the tone for the company during uh, the, the six-month and 12-month and, uh, performance reviews. Uh, every supervisor and subordinate has a discussion about, you know, how are you following the seven operating principles or the things you could be doing differently. And it, it really, we, we didn't have 
uh, wallet cards. We didn't have it, you know, slapped over walls. It was just the way we operated the company. It was uh, uh, very powerful. Yeah, I was going to ask because you're not at a stage where you, you have that Monday morning meeting and you have the PowerPoint slide up there for them to look at. You're you're running on all cylinders. You you you're you're, you're can't really message that much uh, through those obvious means. So how beyond the 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 uh, feedback from from supervisors were there any other ways that you really kind of kept everybody on message and and kept them on culture um first of all i behaved that way and so <laughs> so you know it sounds small but how many times have you been in an organization where you know you're here you're hearing one thing and you're seeing another thing so as I was flying around the world, you know, helping set up distributors in the 65 countries that we ended up doing business in, I was flying coach everywhere because the moment I upgraded the business, somebody's going to find out about it. <laughs> and, and that's not, nece- that's not necessarily frugal. Right. And, uh, so, th- so just setting the example every day and, and then making sure there are people not operating in that fashion that, you know, privately, you call it out, you change the behavior, or maybe this isn't the best place for them to work. <laughs> you know, So it's, uh, and just that direct communication, I think reinforced it. And people felt really good being here. And they loved having a piece of ownership. And, and also we loved having it there too, because those stock options vested over four years. So it was a retention tool for us as well. Sure. And how much did you ultimately raise from investors? $40 million. Okay. So, I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's an incredibly low amount. And, and can you attribute a lot of that to, you know, just the, the constant encouragement of cost containment and uh, frugality? I, I would. And also, we were blessed with uh, attractive gross margins. Yep. So, you know, as we uh, succeeded commercially, um, you know, we were able to fund some of our uh, growth needs uh, internally, you know, versus looking for additional funding outside. And, and we actually we actually uh, uh, executed a uh, an acquisition in early 2014 as That's well, right. which. That's right. Yeah. Was that what? Well, what was the company and was was your plan at the time to to be a standalone aesthetics company and really to, to build something much bigger and in, in, in the market? Uh, it, it was that exactly, Tom, that uh, we felt like, you know, having a one technology platform, even though it was capital and then a growing array of disposables revenue as an annuity that came in, uh, we didn't want to only be tied to that one technology. And so we were looking on a continuing basis for other things that we might be able to also commercialize. But, you know, they had to meet the same criteria. They had to provide consistent results. Uh, they had to bring real value to practices, and we had to be confident, you know, that they would actually do what uh, we said they would do. And Cabochon Aesthetics was the opportunity that fit all of those. Uh, and in fact, uh, Mertz uh, is in the first year of commercialization of that technology for the treatment of cellulite right now, and it's uh, it's just going really well. That's the next source of growth uh, for Mertz globally. Uh, the Technology is called Selfina. That's terrific. So, how, how did you then shift from we're going to build an aesthetics company and, and you did file to go public uh, into eventually deciding to to sell to Mertz? Yeah. So, uh, in 2008, like I mentioned, first revenue five hundred thousand, and then we got Health Canada clearance in May of '09. FDA finally September 11th of 2009. Uh, revenue in '09 was five million. 
2010, 18 million, 2011, 41 million, 2012, 59 million, 2013, 80, 82 million, uh, 2000, um, where was I? 14, uh, we ended up at 118 million. Um, and beginning in 11, we, we eked out about a $200,000 EBIT into, in, in 11. Uh, on the 41 million in revenue. Uh, and then we were positive EBIT from that point forward. And in fact, in 14, we had an $18 million uh, EBIT. So, um, so once we were confident that we could sustain profitability, uh, we felt like that was really powerful and we could uh, um, uh, withstand the scrutiny of the public markets. And, and with the growing annuity revenue stream, we felt like our results were uh, very predictable. So that's when we decided to uh, file an S-1 document after a lot of pre-work you know, with KPMG and Deloitte and Touche and, and a number of lawyers in order to, to get that done. And our intention was fully to, to go public. And we felt like we had a good story. And with the Cabochon acquisition, you know, another uh, opportunity for growth associated with, uh, with the company. Um, so, uh, you know, you file under the Jobs Act. So all of your documentation, 300 pages worth in the S-1 document is confidential. But we got a very uh, challenging reviewer at the SEC. So we were on our third amendment to the S-1 document based on questions that they would ask us. Um, and at that point, the information became non-confidential and everybody had access to it. And so it was April, May of 2014 when it, the information became public and we actually had three companies that expressed interest in acquiring Altera. They liked the growth rate, they liked the margins, but I, I think the most attractive thing is it was a very predictable business and it was already sustainably profitable. And, and, and at that point, there was a bit of an auction going on, and, and Mertz uh, ended up being the most aggressive uh, of the three potential acquirers. And uh, when we got to the, the final agreement, uh, it was really a bit of a tug of war in the boardroom because, wait a minute, but this company is going to be an outstanding public company. Are you sure it's the right time to sell? Uh, and it was a tough decision. Uh, but you know, once it was done, we really have, haven't looked back on it, and they, they've been a very good acquirer, and they're they're focused on our business. So, would you have liked to have led a public company, or are you uh, fine with uh, with not having that on your resume <laughs> or or that experience behind you? Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting, Tom. But you know, at the same time, part of our philosophy that's it, it's never you know certainly never supposed to be about me. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I, it really hasn't been. So it really was irrelevant as to whether I wanted to run a public company. It was what's the right thing to do for the business and, and for the enterprise overall and the employees and the shareholders and the board members, you know, and so that's how the decision was made. That's terrific. Well, it's, it's a great story and uh, a success story that I think we all should, uh, should look to and appreciate your giving us an overview of, of how it all came together. Hey, can I tell you just one other uh, piece to it? Sure, of course. So, so it was about three years ago. In fact, a little over that now. We were having it's like January of 2013, and we were having our global business conference where we bring all the employees in. And our assistant here, Terry Barnhill, had uh, had seen this this great speaker uh, at a conference that her husband attended. She said, "You know, he talks about purpose. 
And in fact, he's co-written a book about purpose and they document a number of companies that have done really well that have taken the time and effort to establish a, a broader purpose for their company other than growing sales or growing profits. And, and so I think he'd be a great speaker. His name's Roy Spence. And so Roy had been the founder uh, and principal of an advertising agency out of Austin, Texas for 30 years. And they had Walmart and Southwest Airlines and the U.S. Naval Academy and a number of other high-profile clients over the years. And so, so Roy comes and speaks to us, and you know, he's got this deep Texas drawl, you know, and it's just like he, he reels you in, and he's talking about, you know, I've done a lot of work on purpose, and he's showing pictures of himself with George Bush and, uh, you know, both George Bush's and Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, so this guy he has a lot of friends in high places. He builds his credibility with us. And he said, I've been doing a lot of thinking about Ulthera, and Ulthera is more than a brow lift, and it's more than a lower face and neck lift. He says, Ulthera's purpose is all about lifting lives. <laughs> you know, and it was like uh, you know, you're at a uh, evangelical, you know, tent <laughs> you know, <laughs> revival meeting. And so we all jump to our feet and say, yes, yes, we're all about lifting lives, you know. And the next day, as we got up and we're sitting around the breakfast table, we say, really, is that what we're about? But sure enough, uh, over about six months, we said, that's what we should be about, improving self-esteem uh, uh, of the patients who get treated. And then, well, let's look for areas within our local community where we can lift the lives of uh, school children and other people that we come into contact with. So we did establish a purpose three years ago of lifting lives and it relates to our business. More importantly, it relates to our philanthropic uh, uh, efforts here. And it's been very meaningful uh, for the company. So I, I didn't want to leave without at least mentioning that. And I would encourage any company, you know, Hey, you know, once you're sustainable, I think you, you have the luxury to think maybe a little bit bigger. Uh, about other things that you might be able to stand for as an organization. I think that's important. Even with our contents and our conferences, I think we try to remember that, uh, you know, we want to provide experiences that really make people feel positive and productive about what they're doing and uh, ways of being successful. And I think it's, uh, it's important to kind of keep an eye on their bigger picture. So I think that's a great, a great final note. Well, and you guys do a great job of bringing the patient perspective uh, and, and patient impact that you're having you know, as you, as you organize uh, the MedTech conference each year. And I appreciate that. Terrific. Well, I, I thank you again. Thank you again for your time. And, uh, I hope we'll hear from you again. Uh, once you've, uh, taken a, a little bit of time off, uh, after MERS. That's right. I need a job again. So who knows what's next? I have to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Well, you can, anyone can email opportunities to me at, uh, Tom at health com, <laughs> and I'll, I'll hook you up with Matt. I'll get a, a yeah, reta great. retainer fee, of course. Thank you, Tom. It's, <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it. Thank you. Take care, Matt. Okay, take care. Hey, Matt Likens, thank you for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. It was a pleasure to have you here. Great to have you at our MedTech conference and look forward to speaking with you again in the future. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, thank you again for joining us for this tale of innovation very happy to bring you the story of Ulthera. I think a really big win in the MedTech space. I'd like to ask you, who would you like to hear on the MedTech Talk podcast? If you have some suggestions or uh, just some feedback on the podcast, go to my Twitter feed, at MedTechTom. It's at MedTechTom on Twitter. 
and uh, just send along a, a message or uh, or a tweet if you'd like as to what kind of stories you'd like to hear on this podcast. Uh, very eager to, to hear more from our community and to understand uh, what leaders we need to hear uh, hear more from as well. So uh, thanks again for joining us on this MedTech Talk podcast episode. And tune in next week for another tale of innovation. Take care, everybody.